Welcome to the Campus Exchange, an AEI for Students podcast. I'm Beth Butler, a senior at Baylor University, and for today's episode, I'm excited to share an interview with Dr. Elizabeth Corey on her essay, Achievement in the Christian Life. Dr. Corey is an associate professor at Baylor University, where she has taught courses on political science, great texts, and in the Baylor Interdisciplinary Corps. She was also a visiting professor at AEI's Initiative on Faith and Public Life during the 2018-2019 academic year. If you'd like to learn more about AEI's Initiative on Faith and Public Life and about its programs for students, just check out the link in our show notes. This episode of the Campus Exchange is part two of our series around graduation and commencement. During the conversation, Dr. Corey offers helpful frameworks to young people navigating the competing demands of achievement and love. She reminds us that answers about vocation and purpose often come slowly and exhorts students to patience and faithfulness in the meantime. We hope you enjoyed today's episode. If you do, be sure to give us a rating to help others find the podcast and to subscribe to the Campus Exchange so you can be the first to know when we release a new episode. With that, here's my conversation with Dr. Elizabeth Corey. Dr. Corey, welcome to the Campus Exchange. So you have written such a thoughtful and helpful piece for AEI and the Initiative on Faith and Public Life about achievement and the Christian life. So before we get into some of the substance of your piece, would you mind explaining us what prompted um, you to write this essay? What was your season of life and work when you began to think about achievement? Well, thanks, Beth. I, I started to write this essay after a lot of thought about the topic. I wrote it in a way for my Baylor students who very often would come to me and say, you know, I'm finishing school, but I'm not sure what the next step is, or I'm finishing school and all my friends seem like they've got everything figured out, or I'm getting married and I don't know how I'm going to go forward with a career and a marriage at the same time. How is, what are the next steps and how is everything going to work? So I I wrote it as as a way of thinking through these issues from the point of view of um, helping helping students and also reflecting on my own experience of, of achievement. I remember very, very clearly being 20, 21 and having those very same questions thinking, oh my goodness, I always knew what I would do through college, but then college ends and what's the next thing? It's, it's all wide open. Uh, and so in a way it was coming to terms with my own thoughts about achievement, which are very mixed in character, I, I mean, uh, obviously, I've, I've been interested in achievement and uh, in, in doing things and in um, achieving, but I also have started to see some of the limits of achievement and the ways in which it can become pathological even uh, when, it, when it becomes the sole aim of life. So this essay was an attempt to get at some of those issues, to, to talk about achievement and how we might think of, think of achievement in a more positive way, ultimately, without letting it rule our lives. I think that's really helpful. And speaking as a 20-year-old college student, you you say at the very opening of the essay, you sort of ask, do you feel calm? And I remember reading that the first time I read this essay, just no, thinking, no, this is not a very calm time of life. So I think you really did identify a, a point of time when young people need a lot of help. <laughs> you mentioned that um, achievement can become a pathology for uh, many people. And you also quote Michael Oakeshott at the beginning of the essay, who says that achievement is a diabolical element of human life. 
So could you describe more, why is this? Why, why should we view achievement as such uh, something that can be so pernicious? That's a great question because I think it's a, it's a kind of a counterintuitive question in the sense that students are always told, here's what you must do. You must become the most excellent version of yourself. You must uh, achieve excellence, strive for the best. And all that is true to, to a certain extent. But Oakshot, there's a wonderful short essay. Actually, there are a couple of essays that I would recommend uh, of Oakshot's. Uh, Michael Oakshot was a British political philosopher who wrote in the 20th century. Uh, he wrote a little piece called Work and Play, which was published after his death in 1995 in First Things Magazine. You can just search it through, through Google and find it. Um, and that is one of the places he takes up the question of achievement. But the other is a short essay he wrote when he was about 28 himself. And it was called Religion and the World. And he set out two ways of being in the world. It wasn't, you can either be religious or you can be secular. That's not what he was saying. He was saying rather that there are two ways of being in the world. One of those ways is to stake your whole life's worth on achievement and on being excellent in the future and constantly uh, investing in the future and never living in the present, never enjoying what's before you, but always thinking about, well, who will I be in 20 years? And he said, that's a very, frankly, a very bad way to live because you might die. You might, uh, you know, anything could happen to you in the interim and you would not have been lived the life that was before you at the time. And so he says the, what he calls the religious way of living is a way of living that appreciates the present, that uh, enjoys things that can be ends in themselves like love, friendship, conversation. He put liberal learning in that category. So all these things that are, are engaged in as, as kinds of ends in themselves, he thought were, were uh, important. So in, in light of those distinctions that he makes, you know, against, uh, uh, between uh, religion on the one hand, which is this re religious life lived in the present and uh, the career or the worldly life, uh, this life of achievement, he said achievement has a way of becoming um, very harmful, <laughs> frankly, to the souls of, of young people because, we are put in this sort of treadmill of achieving the next great thing and then the next great thing. And it causes a great deal of stress and anxiety and very little happiness or often very little happiness in the, in the moment. So that's why he calls it diabolical because he says, look, if we put our, if we put the, our whole lives in the service of, of achievement, then we fail to live uh, the life that's actually before us. And I found that very, very persuasive as a young person because everyone around me was doing these things like going to law school or becoming a consultant or um, you know, doing a Fulbright scholarship or something just you know, really great things. And I did none of that at, at that age. And I thought, well, what do I do? And Oakshot came in and said, well, you live your life as it comes to you uh, and, and don't worry about the future quite so much. And that's something that is a Christian. I mean, Oakshot was a sort of an interesting religious person. He wasn't uh, an Orthodox Christian, but I think it, it does map onto the life uh, of, of the, to the Christian life. And so that's why, uh, that's partly why I wrote the piece, uh, Achievement in the Christian Life. Absolutely. And then sort of continuing with that, so you set up a dichotomy in your article and um, say, saying that there are two basic orientations towards the world, either the orientation of achievement or the orientation of love. So you've already talked about this a little bit, but would you mind just sort of explaining? So what are the hallmark traits of these two orientations toward the world? What, what do they both look like? Well, we should maybe start with the, with the, one, with the orientation toward achievement. 
that is, as I've just been saying, uh, an understanding of life where your value, your own personal value is understood as bound up with what you can do and what your resume looks like and the the things that you have um, achieved. I mean, it, it's, it's, it's fairly straightforward. I mean, Mike, uh, not Mike Lookshot, uh, David Brooks wrote a piece. It's actually a full book. Um, and he, he calls these different orientations, the resume uh, virtues and the eulogy virtues. And the resume virtues are the virtues that uh, are prized by the achievement mentality that you, know, you, you put together a great resume and you list all the wonderful things you've done and the fellowships you've had and the things you've published. Uh, and the eulogy virtues are the, the alternative to this. And what I would say is this other orientation I'm trying to describe, which is perhaps best understood as an orientation of love or care for others. So that when you're achieving, very often you're thinking about yourself first and foremost. But when you turn to the other parts of life that we all know are important, whether or not we can put them on a resume, and usually we can, they're things like caring for parents or caring for children or being a sibling or being a friend or having these kind of relational virtues. And I think those are ultimately the more enduring uh, of, of the virtues. Not, not to say that I'm anti-achievement, I'm not at all. In fact, I'm, I'm sure we'll talk later about the ways in which I think achievement is a very good thing. Uh, but, but ultimately Brooks says too, that the eulogy virtues are the things that you know, will be said about you upon your death. And they are not usually achievement-based. They're not usually mm -hmm. how much did you do uh, in your career. So those are really the two, the two orientations. Man, yeah, so, so thinking about anti-achievement, you also explained that there may be two sort of extreme responses to tensions that people feel between the pulls of achievement and the demands of love. And so one is a sort of run for the hills, maybe boho existence where someone rejects the demands of society and the pull toward achievement. And then the other is you explain the sort of classic workaholic who is tied up completely in their work and unable to understand themselves outside of it. So what, what do you think compels people to take toward these different extremes? And do you see students in my generation being drawn more toward the one or the other? Okay, that's a lot of questions in one. They're all really good and very interesting. I, let me take the last one first. I think I think I see among your generation, more so than mine, I'm about probably 25 years older than you, um, your generation is very achievement focused. I mean, most of the young people I meet who are in college are very much thinking about, well, what is the, what is the, what is the career I want? What is the thing I want to do in terms of professional life? And this is interesting because it is as much among women as it is among men. I mean, maybe more so. I can't tell you how many young women have come and said, you know, I, I want to be a mother, but I also want to be married. Well, I want to be married. I want to be a mother. And I also want to have a career. How does this all work together? And that's an interesting kind of side question. But the point is that women and men equally are, are being asked to think about, okay, what's the, what's the career path for me going forward? So I, I think that's much more the norm than the off the grid. Uh, when I was graduating from Oberlin uh, College in the 1990s, I had a group of friends who went off and decided, I, Beth, I've probably told you the story before, that they wanted to live on a farm 
and just opt out of the rat race. They knew people who were going to law school. They knew people who were doing med school, but they weren't going to do all that. They were going to go and live a kind of communal life. It didn't last particularly long, but that's the, that's the alternative. You know, you go off the grid, you say, I'm not going to play this game. Uh, ultimately, I don't think either one of those options is great. The either exclusive focus on career or uh, the off the grid. I mean, I think there are ways of, of integrating the two orientations, but it takes a lot of balance. And I think the thing that drives people to the extremes is that it's, it, it's almost easier to say, well, I'm just going to focus on one thing. I'm either going to be for it or against it. And to, to create a kind of middle path is, is much more difficult because there, there will always be times when you will say, well, I want to be at work, but I also want to be with my family. Which do I choose? How do I balance the love and the achievement in terms of my daily life. And it's, it's difficult. Um, and in thinking about sort of making decisions about priority and balancing. So one of the sort of productive modes that you line out to redeem achievement and to view achievement rightly in the Christian life is to orient achievement around transcendental things like truth, goodness, and beauty, which is very sound advice, but what, what does that, what does that look like for someone who's making career choices and making maybe mundane choices too, about just how to order and structure their days? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. Well, first, let me say what I mean by, I mean, that sounds all very highfalutin to talk about orienting your life around the transcendentals. What I mean there is that there are, there are two ways in which you can think about achievement. It can either be achievement so that you are glorified. And so people think you are awesome and you are, you know, worthy of being talked about and, and so forth. It, it, it's in a way achievement so that you can be um, almost a commodity in yourself. That is a very, uh, frankly, I think, destructive way of thinking about achievement. Uh, the alternative to that, or at least, I mean, there are probably many alternatives, but one alternative I see is your desire to achieve springs not from your desire to be seen and known and famous, but to do something that you think is worthy in itself. For example, I often uh, talk to students about this. And I say, is there anything that you have been good at as a child or as a teenager or as a college student that you just, you, you see the activity and you say, I want to do that. Obvious examples are things like music. You know, you, let's say you're a, a violinist and you, hear a great violinist play and you say, I want to be able to do that. I want to achieve on that level. And so you're drawn to achievement because that is such a great good. Or uh, you might say, you can see the same thing in sports. You know, you watch a great gymnast and you say, I, I have a talent in, gym, in uh, gymnastics and I want to be great. I want to be like she is or he is. And, and you're drawn to the activity because you just see the beauty and goodness in the activity. Uh, those are those are ways of talk, of thinking about achievement that are not they don't put you at the center in a, in a certain way. You are drawn to the activity because you think it's good. Scholarship could be the same way. You could say, "Hey, I want to write a book like this wonderful book I just read," and you say, "Okay, I want to I want to pursue the academic life." Therefore, so I think putting putting yourself putting achievement in service of a good that is not is not simply self focused is a way of redeeming uh, achievement in some sense. Now, I didn't answer your first question. You cannot live your, your whole life saying, well, I want to pursue these, these transcendentals all the time, every day. <laughs> and in, because think about it. Let's say you do want to 
pursue the good of, uh, let's say, academic study. You want to write a wonderful book about St. Augustine because you read a wonderful book about St. Augustine. It may be the case that in order to do that, you have to invest 20 years of your life in doing things that are not exactly writing that wonderful book that you have in mind. You might go to graduate school. You might take a job in a bank. You might, um, you might do all sorts of things that would sort of facilitate your daily life because everybody has to make, some, make money and support themselves and, and you know, do, the, do the ordinary practical things of daily life. Um, but you would then always, I think, have in mind, okay, well, there is this thing that drives me. Um, so so what the, all that is to say, you don't have to say, well, I'm going to become an artist or, or a scholar, and that's the only thing I'll do. Um, but you, you know, you, you keep it in your mind as a, as an aim that you may come back, that you may come back to, uh, or you may work your way to it quickly, you may work your way to it slowly. Um, but, but, but bearing in mind that it's not always a direct path to the, to the thing you want to do. I think that's Absolutely. helpful because a, a lot of students come and say, well, you know, I, people ask me what I'm going to do with my life and I don't know. And I said, well, I, I didn't know either. In fact, I, you know, I'm every day is, is, is kind of a new evaluation. What, how do I want the next day, week, month, year to look? And you're, you're doing what uh, some, really what Michael Oakeshott calls the pursuit of intimations or the, the sense that what he means there is you are pursuing hints about what your next steps may be. Nobody is going to give you a, a roadmap for the rest of your life. You have to figure it out as you go. And I think that's a very liberating thing to realize. There's no one, today I've decided that this will be my life's work, but instead it's the accumulation of a thousand ordinary days. You've said that beautifully because I, I think there is something in young people and there certainly was in me that wanted that answer, that wanted somebody to say, okay, this is your talent. Here's what you're gonna do. And here's how to get there. And then it would all be decided and the anxiety would be gone. And I simply don't think it's like that for most people. No, I, I think that's a very good word. Something I've thought about is that I think that questions about achievement feel a little bit more fraught for people who, and this is largely probably the people that you're writing to with this essay, who view their work as closely tied to their own individual sense of calling or purpose rather than I, you know, maybe I studied this field in business and now I just want to find a nine to five job, but I view my purpose and my passions as elsewhere. But I would imagine a lot of the readers of your essay and even in your own life, Dr. Corey, that your work as a professor is closely tied to your sort of calling as a steward of young lives. So how, what advice do you have for people who view their work as the expression of sort of their calling and purpose? How should they be thinking about achievement also? Okay, that makes it much more difficult, doesn't it? I mean, there are, there are two ways of thinking about this. The one is kind of an old fashioned notion. And I think maybe our grandparents would have had this notion that you, you do your work, you go to work, you make your money, and then you go home. And the sort of the more re perhaps rewarding part of life has very little to do with your work. Or that was many people's view. And it is still many people's view, especially people who uh, are not in college, they have a job and then they have life outside their job and the two aren't necessarily related. You might as well go to uh, this job as that job and it doesn't make a lot of difference. I think the people I'm talking to in this podcast and certainly the people I'm talking to in the essay are people who are like you and who are like I was where we think, okay, well, 
not only a job is, is, a, is a job, of course, to make money, but a vocation or a calling is something bigger than that. And I want to use my talents in the service very often of the glory of God, if, if I can. And so therefore this notion of job and career is so much more pressing. I mean, I think that's why uh, for many people, um, Christian, Jewish or, or nothing, you know, in terms of religion, um, you, you feel this immense sense of, I've got to figure this out and I've got to figure this out right. Because it's not just, uh, you know, a career is not just a way of making money, but it is a kind of self-expression. It is a uh, manifestation of who you are as a person. And that's a lot of pressure. On the other hand, how do you how do you make it work? Um, it's a it's a it's a tricky it's a tricky question, and I think the thing that I say in the essay and, and believe to be true that helps with that enormous pressure that I've just described in terms of uh, I've got to fully live out my vocation is to recognize that it's not all about you and your achievement. I mean, and this is where I think um, having having a religious um, commitment actually helps a great deal. Because as I understand it, first of all, I mean, you're, you are enacting talents that you didn't make for yourself. I mean, let's say you uh, want to, let's just use the musician example. You want to be a great musician. Well, that is going to be possible for some people more than others on the basis of talents that they have or that they don't have. Uh, and so recognizing that perhaps your abilities are not solely self constructed. I mean, you are given certain talents and then you get, you can enact those. And that in itself is a, is a way of saying, okay, it's not all me. I was given things. Uh, I, I want to enact them, but I didn't, I'm not solely responsible for the way uh, things turn out. That, that is one, that is one way I, I think about it. The other is um, to recognize that I, there, there's a kind of humility, I think, that goes along with, with a vocation, which is simply saying, I'm going to do the very best I can and leave the rest uh, to be determined by events, by God. Uh, and and it, is not, it is not necessarily the case that the hardest work always yields the, the greatest success or the, or the, the best outcomes. There's a, there's a way in which you've, you've, you've got to somehow balance the desire to achieve and the desire to do well with the, with the understanding that uh, a lot of it is out of your, uh, a lot of is out of your control. And I think letting, letting go a little bit of the desire to absolutely control your future and control everything about your life is a, is a, is a kind of liberating thing to do. It's not the easiest thing because I think the other thing that uh, is so prevalent among especially your generation of students is that we all wanna know and control and, and just get the whole thing uh, at the beginning. And it's not, it's not easy to do. I think you're exactly right that humility is, a, this is a, it's a really liberating aspect of this conversation, but also a very countercultural way to view your talents as you, you talk in the essay to view yourself as a steward of your of your talents rather than the possessor that it it's very it's that's difficult because that is not the way that it's usually talked about you know even from early days of school that's a, that's a beautiful way of putting it Beth um, that you're a steward and not a possessor I mean it's it's very much the we, we understand stewardship with respect to money um, and also with respect to possessions so that you might be a steward of, um, you know, let's say you live in a home and you're a steward of 
you preserve that home, but it, you don't think of the home as truly yours. You didn't build it, it's, you didn't construct it. And if we think of our talents in that way, uh, it is it is somehow more freeing. I mean, the other thing I, I think that that goes along with this is the other is the, is another thing I say in the essay, which is that ultimately one hopes that one's talents will be used in the service of other people too. So that it's not just you're you're serving this this notion you have of truth, goodness, or beauty, important as that is, but that you might be able then to turn your talents toward helping and advocating for and making the lives better of other people. And that's an easy, I mean, teaching is one way of doing that. Certainly medicine is another, uh, and there are plenty of ways, ways to do it. But I think that's a way of also saying, it's not just about the level of achievement that I may or may not gain. It's also about what can I do for other people? And you say that that's even the transfiguration of achievement. It's to render it, can it to, be. to the service of others. Yes. And I started to see that as a, as a teacher when I realized I wasn't the student anymore, that I was actually in a position of authority. And so students were looking to me now in the way that I used to look to teachers. I still do look to my teachers this way. So it never goes away altogether. But but then I realized, okay, they're they're looking for the same things I was looking for: reassurance, guidance, help, insight, and I can give that to them now because I've been through a lot of years of apprenticeship, and and that's a that's what made me see, okay, it isn't achievement isn't just this solely self focused thing, but it does it, it can in the end turn toward uh, the good of others, and that isn't that is very important. And you don't all you don't have to be 50 years old to, to see this. I, I use the example of, of camp counselors or older siblings. Think about what it's like to be in those positions. You know, the, the kids at camp look up to you and think you are godlike and you can pour into their lives and be tremendously influential for the good. And the same is true with, with siblings. To the extent you're not fighting with them, you can be a kind of um, mentor. So you don't have to you don't have to be old to figure this out. You can figure it out uh, even in your teens and twenties. Mm -hmm. So, Dr. Corey, you how do you think that the liberal arts fit into this discussion? A lot of your writing and research is about the liberal arts as a training ground for appreciating intrinsically good things. So, how what do the liberal arts have to say to a culture that's caught up in achievement? Well. I think the major thing they teach you is that they model in a way, if they're taught well, the kind of activity I'm talking about that is not solely based on achievement. You've already implied this just in your question. When you study Plato, you are not studying Plato so that you can directly use Plato in your life. I mean, in, in no way are you going to go out and say, well, Plato says this about the good society, so I'm gonna to try to put that into practice. You are, you are reading Plato for the, the, hopefully the pure joy of it or the insight or the, the practice in thinking and the practice in conversation. If let's say you read it in a seminar class, you are, you are doing that thing as, a, as an end in itself so that, so that you can leave college and say, I remember what it was like to engage in liberal learning as an end in itself. Now, how, how often does that happen outside of college? Not 
super often because outside of the classroom, we're very often engaged in things that are practical, like getting a job or, um, you know, making friends or, you know, do all sorts of good things, but we're not doing things that are solely intrinsically um, worthwhile. So I think the liberal arts insofar, I mean, and anything can be studied as a liberal art. I mean, almost, um, you know, you can study physics because you love physics and you want to understand the, the principles that underlie the field. You can study math this way. You can study certainly history or philosophy or art history or any of these other subjects. But to the degree that you're doing it um, for its own sake, I think that is a wonderful way of trying to get at the the kinds of experiences that Oakshot um, sort of sparked in me as a young person to say, okay, I, I want to live so that I can enjoy things for their own sake. And there, that, that is one way we can do it. So that's one of the, one of the good things I find um, in, in the study of the liberal arts. And then thinking about a specific text of the liberal arts, you use the example of Odysseus on Calypso's Island in your essay as an example of a useless, unfulfilling human life because he has no good work and humans need good work to flourish. But are there other examples in classic literature or other characters or scenes that you think are helpful images of what a life of good, meaningful achievement can be? Well, there are, of course, there are many. But I, I think I would like to come back to the, the image of Odysseus just to, to meditate on it for a minute, because this is always something that I uh, love to, to talk with students about. We get to the point where Odysseus is stuck on Calypso's island. Well, what is his situation there? He's with a beautiful goddess who is at his service in every way. He has all the food he can eat. He's very, uh, very happy. I mean, he ought to be very happy, but the point is that he's not. And so I always ask students, well, why would you be happy if you were Odysseus on Calypso's Island? And usually, you know, a young man will say, yes, that would be great. I would love it. I would drink beer on the beach all day long. And that would be great. I actually had a student say that once. But then when you press a little bit more, you realize that that would be great for about a few, a few days, maybe a week. And then what comes next? And almost everybody immediately sees, well, I would be bored. And well, I wouldn't have any friends. And what about my family? You know, all these other issues and questions come to mind in a way that, you know, a life of pure sort of hedonistic pleasure on a desert island cannot give you. And so what, what I say in the essay is that Odysseus doesn't have his love aspect of life. He doesn't have his wife. He doesn't have his father or his son. And all those relationships are extraordinarily meaningful to him. And he also doesn't have any work to do. He is idle. So maybe the next essay I write will be about the good of work, because as much as I've been criticizing achievement, you know, a life without work and without serious, good, purposeful work is not one that I want either. So <laughs> the real trick, you know, in human life is being able to balance this desire for good work and for real achievement that is meaningful with the very important relationships and love that that constitute um, marriage, family, children, uh, all the all the things that we often take for granted, but ought not to be taken for granted. Leaving the university world of liberal arts and entering the world of the church, how how do Christians talk about work usually? Do you think it's do they talk about work in a way that's significantly better than people without faith? Do you think? 
um, or how should Christians talk about work? It's interesting. You know, I have I haven't uh, read a lot about um, this, so I'm kind of guessing, or I'm speaking on in the terms of people I have spoken with. I think Christians, in many ways, get sucked into the sort of secular way of thinking about achievement. I mean, unless we consciously say no, we don't have to to play this game in quite the same way. It's very easy to be caught up in. Um, in, in the same kind of rat race that that everybody else is caught up in. I mean, one of the one of the reasons I wrote this essay was that when I was up for tenure at Baylor, which is a, a big ordeal and a, and a big deal, um, I, I remember thinking, well, I'm at a Christian school and yet I have to do all these things that are extraordinarily self-promoting and they encourage a kind of pride. And that's true. And that happens at Christian schools and at secular schools. So it, it, in many ways, the requirements of career in the world are uh, n- not that different, say, in a, in a secular um, versus a Christian environment. However, I do think that people, to the extent they, they stop to think about these things, have a, if, if they're Christians, they, they have a better way of, of understanding it, which is that our lives are not exhausted by the achievement we uh, may uh, enjoy here on earth. I mean, that, that in the great scheme of things, that seems like a very, it could be a very small part of it, uh, a part of life's meaning. And so I, I think Christians have the possibility of thinking about achievement in a much richer way. Whether or not we always do it is, is a real question. I think it's very easy to forget and to say, well, my Christian life is the, is the stuff I do on on the on Sunday and then on Wednesday night, but then my work life has nothing to do with my faith. And I, I hope that we can we can overcome that. Well, Dr. Corey, that is all that we have time for today. But thank you so much for joining us uh, in talking about this topic that's very important. So really appreciate your time. It's been a pleasure, Beth. Thank you. If you enjoyed this episode of the Campus Exchange, make sure to give us a rating and subscribe to the podcast. Also, if you want to learn more about AEI's work on college campuses, visit AEI.org or click on the link in the show notes. Lastly, make sure to follow us at AEI for Students on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook to learn more about upcoming programs for students.